friends, our final episode for season eight and it has just flown by. Before we sign off, we'd like to leave a gentle reminder that if you like what we do, we'd very much appreciate your support to continue recording our podcast. If you head to our website, twoscientists.org, you'll find links to us where you can buy us a coffee, make a one-time donation, contribute to our Patreon, or go online to our store to buy your merchandise of choice with our cute little logo on it. We have shirts, stickers, mugs, and more, so head to our Tea Public store now. Enough about us, though, and more about our guest. Today's conversation with Dr. Brandon Blue is rather perfectly scheduled for Blood Cancer Awareness Month. And honestly, there is a lot to be made aware of, which coincidentally is another thing that Brandon does with his work in the community. So let's head into our conversation on the science of cancer and care. Alright, howdy friends, thank you for tuning in to another Two Scientists episode where inspiring scientists share their work with you wherever you'd like to listen. Um, I'm your host, Pamvi Bahia, and today is a weird one for us back at our spiritual home of the New World Brewery. Speaking of our guest today, we have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Brandon Blue, an assistant professor of oncology at Moffitt Cancer Center. How are you doing, Brandon? So far, I'm happy to be here. Things are good and uh, life is good. So ready for a wonderful interview. This is going to be great. Glad to hear it. I love, I love the enthusiasm right at the beginning. Um, Let's keep it going. Yeah, for sure. So before he met up with us today, Brandon sent a little blurb uh, describing himself as a kid from St. Pete. Those of you who don't know where St. Pete is, um, it's not in Russia. It is another city in the Tampa Bay area in Florida. And he grew up to be a doctor and came back to his community to cure cancer for his hometown. So there are a lot of gaps in that description. Can you tell <laughs> us what you've been doing since leaving St. Pete and coming back to Moffitt? Yeah, you know, um, that is a good summary because everything does come full circle, you know. But uh, fortunately, I did have some cool stops along the way. So, uh, you know, I left St. Pete. I got excellent training at Florida State. Uh, and uh, had some excellent undergraduate years. I don't remember them too much because I was in the library most of the time, but uh, it all paid off, right? Um, when I was at Florida State, we were the number one party school in the country. So it was difficult because like, I could like hear screams of people like having an excellent time, but I would have like a test the next day. But uh, fortunately, I made some good decisions at a very young age, uh, landing me up in medical school, which uh, I was in Nashville, Tennessee at Meharry Medical College and uh, also had a wonderful time there. That's where I met my wife, mm -hmm. uh, who's also a doctor. Uh, and so, um, you know, she was also a study partner for me. Uh, and she's a lot smarter than I am. And so, uh, <laughs> no, seriously. And so I made it through medical school uh, really by her teaching me some study tricks and some things that I didn't know along the way. And, um, and then we le both left there and went to uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, I was at uh, Washington University, one of the top, uh, you know, kind of medical uh, institutions in the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, we stayed in St. Louis. Ooh, man maybe close to seven years oh, wow. and then uh, we got a chance to come back to uh, Tampa Bay uh, uh, in 2018 and I've been here ever since so uh, uh, it does come full circle. Not that this interview is about your wife, but what does she specialize in? She's a, a neonatologist, so she takes yeah. care of premature babies. So, you know, I always, you know, tell people, you know, the bun likes to cook in the oven, but sometimes <laughs> it comes out a little bit before it's due. Mm -hmm. And whenever they come out a little early, she's the doctor who takes care of them when that happens. So 
That's an adorable analogy. Yeah, well, you know, it's tough because the uh, unfortunately the patients that she has are like the size of your hand. You oh, know wow, what I mean? Yeah. And they're and they're very small. And she does she does some very cool things uh, with kids that are very small. And so, um, you know, technically they should still be in the womb, and uh -huh. now they're out to the world. And so that does create some problems. So yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. But um, obviously, we're here to talk about you today. <laughs> um, and so what I wanted to ask about is your specific field of interest is in blood-related cancers, right? Mm -hmm. um, so can you tell us what happens in these conditions? What goes wrong and how common are they? Yeah, so um, this is unfortunately the what we call the backstage of cancer. Mm -hmm. So out in front stage are the breast cancers. Everyone's heard about lung cancer, prostate cancer, even colon cancer. You know, those kind of have the, uh, you know, the, the opening act and the closing act. But really the behind the stage workers, the things that nobody really sees are the cancers such as lymphoma, leukemia, and what we call multiple myeloma. All right. And uh, these are what we call blood related malignancies or we call them hematologic malignancies in the medical field. And so these, unfortunately, are not common at all, mm -hmm. but they are very important because unfortunately, because they're not as common, they're not known about. And so if they're not known about, then people don't know to get checked for them. And oh, so yeah. if you don't get checked for them, unfortunately, we see them in very advanced diseases uh, and advanced states. And unfortunately, yeah. sometimes that leads to um, not the best outcomes, unfortunately. So so um, it. Uh, it is a very critical uh, disease and something that uh, is out there, um, but unfortunately, it's just not enough uh, notoriety out there. So I appreciate podcasts like this. I can kind of spread the word a little bit just so people can hear about it. It might be the first time they've ever heard of multiple myeloma or lymphoma or leukemia. And if they don't know about it, you know, hopefully they can kind of start Googling. This is kind of starts that hamster wheel turning. So yeah. we'll see. Yeah, I guess the association with leukemia is usually with kids, right? So people might have heard about it in children. Yeah, yeah, but unfortunately, uh, is what we call a bimodal disease, meaning that like there's two peaks. You know, there's mm -hmm. a peak early in life, and that's typically one that people kind of uh, know more about um, because it happens in children. But unfortunately, that wave uh, goes down, but also comes back up later in life. Uh, and you know, just like I said, everything's full circle. You know. Um, our wearing diapers sometimes happens in early age and uh, an elderly, you know, us uh, being dependent on other people happens at early age also in elderly. So unfortunately, this is one of those diseases that kind of unfortunately does a very similar thing. And so um, it's kind of a very uh, commonality issue. Yeah. Question for you, though, is are they really the same disease? You talk about two different peaks, but mm -hmm. are they the same kind of cancer or are very different? Um, you mean as far as uh, the, um, yeah. so it's a little bit different, right? So um, as far as the actual disease themselves, like what the cells look like, they're very similar, okay? But unfortunately, uh, how we treat someone who's 65 may be different when we treat someone who's six, right? So sometimes the treatment is really what's different, even though sometimes the actual, like on a molecular level or on a cellular level may be the same cells that may be going wrong, but unfortunately you've had 65 years to develop issues. <laughs> and so unfortunately the treatment unfortunately can't be the same sometimes. So let's backtrack a little bit and um, go into what it is that causes these diseases so what what goes wrong in our bodies for these blood cancers to arise yeah so that's a great question so you know um as people know that the cells in our bodies divide and grow we make new ones and the ones that we have don't last as long so new ones need to be made unfortunately there is a problem sometimes in what we call the maturation process so meaning that like 
uh, this would be a good analogy. So, you know, if you think about a baby, you know, it kind of hangs out in the womb for nine months, then it comes out into the world. Typically, unless my wife has to save them, but yeah. but but typically nine months into the womb. But how it starts and at month one, it's much different than what it looks like at month nine. And so there's a maturation process that needs to happen. That's normal part of life. And that same things happen with our cells. And sometimes these cells get stuck in that month one or early stage disease, but they continue to grow. So imagine a baby looking like what a month one month baby looks like but just getting bigger Ooh. we know that that's a problem right yeah. and so unfortunately um when that happens that happens typically inside of our bone marrow because our bone marrow is typically the spot where we make these new cells uh and then it really creates a lot of problems so um that's that's typically where most of the problems happen is that as these cells dividing unfortunately they decide to go left when they should have went right and that just happens a lot of times as we age because if you think about it you've had the most chances for something to go wrong, right? Like mm -hmm. if you only drive in your car once a year, your chance of getting to a car accident are super low. But yeah. now you drive, you know, an hour or two every day, the chances just go up. And so as we age, the same thing happens. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so how do these things manifest themselves within the body? So when a person gets sick, you're saying that, you know, you want people to be able to understand, to look for what might be going wrong. What happens to uh, a patient when they develop these kinds of cancers? So, you know, um, the brain has a funny way of normalizing things. So, for example, in lymphoma, we get these lumps and bumps in what we call lymph nodes, all right? Lymph mm -hmm. nodes are typically in your neck, underneath your chin, also as well as under your armpit and in your groin. Very common places, okay? However, you might say, oh, this bump here is nothing, or, and then, you know, you start to normalize it because your brain thinks, of course, I don't have cancer. There's nothing wrong with me. Yeah. And you really don't notice it until like, for example, you see family for thank. Well, we used to see family for Thanksgiving, uh -huh. but, you know, but, but typically the holidays is really a big time for us because, you know, we say, grandma, why is your neck so big? Or, you know, what's happening there? And you look completely different than what I would expect. You yeah. need to go get that checked, you know? So, so a lot of times it's very subtle things. Um, that typically don't happen in other cancers. So as I mentioned, those front stage cancers, breast cancer, lung cancer, for example, is very intuitive to your brain to say, hey, there's a lump in my breast. That mm -hmm. should not be there. Let me go get that checked. Or, hey, unfortunately, I'm having blood in my stools. This shouldn't happen. Yeah. Let me go get that checked. Yeah. But when you tell someone, hey, I'm having fatigue and I'm tired, like they're ask their other friends who are like in their 60s or 70s and say, hey, are you tired? Like, they say, yes, of course. <laughs> what do you mean? You know, um, unfortunately, one of the conditions called multiple myeloma likes to attack the spine. So mm. then that causes back pain. But then yeah. you ask your other friends who are like 70. Hey, buddy, are you having back pain? They say, sure. What do you mean? You know, yeah. and so and so unfortunately, a lot of the incidents that we see are like incidental. You know, yeah. or when the like again, like I said, the disease is at a very late stage where it's caused like a spinal fracture or something where it's you know very dramatic. And so um, I do appreciate sometimes we do see people early and we can follow them throughout the course of the disease and really start treatment at an early stage and have the better outcome. You know, kind of at the end of the day. So yeah. So um, what are the treatments for these kinds of diseases? Yeah, unfortunately, um, a lot of times it's very intensive chemotherapy, okay? Mm -hmm. But the great news about time is that things change. And so what we had available in, you know, 
2011 is different than what we're doing in 2021. Mm -hmm. So one of the newest and latest and greatest things that's really affecting these blood cancers is what we call immunotherapy. Basically using our own immune system to instead of fighting off some bacteria or virus or, you know, fungus that we have to make sure it attacks actually cancer cells. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's one of the like latest and greatest and kind of biggest exciting things. You know, like I'm always getting like, you know, sweating now thinking about it (laughs) because it's just so exciting and you're really offering like really state-of-the-art therapy and uh, treatment for people who really may not have had some options and so um, it's 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 a game changer yeah so explain how these things work I mean these days I feel like given pandemic and so on (laughs) most people are a bit more familiar with immune responses than they ever were Um, can you explain to us how those those technologies work yeah so uh, really um, if you think about it And I'll try to keep it simple, uh, but really the main fighters that we have in our body are what we call T cells and B cells, okay? Mm -hmm. And so these T cells are really like the infantry in the military. Their job is to really kind of kill things right there on the ground and really get rid of things, almost like hand-to-hand kind of combat, okay? And so they're very efficient at doing that because that's the job that they've been doing your whole life. But typically what happens is that, you know, you get... um, you know, the flu or the cold or God forbid COVID or some issue. And these T cells really help your body get rid of them. That's why you might tell somebody say, Oh, um, you got a cold, you'll get better in a couple days because really that's how long the war, the war is and the battle is that the body takes to get rid of that. But so we thought say, well, let's use these same killing mechanisms. What we do is we take out someone's T cells or these fighters and we kind of train them to fight a new enemy. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's a process that takes to do that. Typically, we have to kind of uh, identify a target yep. and say, hey, instead of looking for that COVID or looking for that you know, bacteria, this is going to be your new enemy. All mm-hmm. right. This is going to be your new target. Uh, and the T cells say, OK, they just like killing things. <laughs> and so um, unfortunately, it happens that a lot of people have a lot of cancer around. And so if we tell them that's the target. It gets rid of it. Yeah. It's so Is there the possibility with these things that they start killing too many of the things? Because obviously you've you've got healthy cells as well. Yeah, so that's where picking the target is super important, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, one of the mechanisms uh, that we use for these T-cells is... um, there's certain markers or I tell people certain hats that the cells wear, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, you know, we tell them, say, Hey, if it's a green hat, you know, leave it alone. Don't touch it. If you see a red one, get rid of it, you Mm -hmm. know? And so that's where picking the target gets tricky and complicated because you want to make sure that there's enough of those red cells on the cancer cells and almost none or zero of those red hats on normal cells. And so, uh, that's why, um, the field is expanding and we're still learning, right? Uh, because uh, we know more now than we did a year or two ago about our own normal cells. So that kind of helps educate us on really how to make sure we kind of can kill the cancer cells. Yeah. So we're talking a lot about the, the kind of physician side of your work, but you also do research. Can you tell us about the, the kind of work that you do? Yeah. So, um, you know, unfortunately, um, there are a group of people uh, that really don't respond equitably to treatment all right whether that be an access to treatment or even from the actual outcomes getting the same treatment 
they either sometimes even present at a later stage or they're, they're just groups of people who unfortunately just don't get the same results. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think that was fair, yeah. you know? And so my job as a researcher in that department uh, is to really try to figure out why these disparities in these certain populations exist and what can we do about it? And how can we make kind of even the playing field a little bit to kind of make sure that if we have some latest and greatest technology that it's reaching the people with the greatest need. Yeah. So describe how that that looks in terms of like real world um, works that you do. How, how sure. do you set up experiments yeah. and trials? So, um, you know, I like to say that, you know, with really any new innovation, there comes a new opportunity for disparity. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is, is that we have some new, let's use these CAR T cells, for example, this new great groundbreaking, uh, exciting new treatment that we know works. Okay. And then we say, all right, well, um, if the people who unfortunately um, die from this disease don't get this problem, then that means the gap will only get bigger, right? Mm -hmm. Because that means that the people who are already doing well, when we give them the treatment, they will do that much better. Uh, And so what we try to figure out is, is, uh, first of all, education, right? Like, Like, is that the problem, right? Like, if we educate people enough about hey, we put something on the billboard or we give you a brochure, like, this is a cool thing, you should do it. Is that enough? We don't know. So we have to research that. Or is it actually the doctors? So uh, I fortunately work at Moffitt Cancer Center, and which is a, a great academic institution that does a lot of groundbreaking research, but that's not really where most people get their cancer care. Mm-hmm. Most people get it at the doctor that's five minutes across the street from their house. Yeah. And so... We, we need to do is educate the doctors, right? We have some kind of new groundbreaking uh, thing that can kind of really help patients. The doctors don't know about it. They don't know the complexities of it. So it's our job to kind of do that. And so we have to research how do we do that effectively. Another thing is now if the doctors know about it and the patients know about it, how do they get to Tampa? Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, as you know, Florida is more than tampa and disney world and miami (laughs) you know there's a lot of like what we call rural parts of florida that unfortunately um make up the majority of the state and so access to the care also is a problem so so it's really multifaceted of really trying to make sure that uh, even if people who come from you know um the middle of nowhere florida Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we make sure that they still get access to these care so it's 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 kind of multi-pronged approach and so there's no one way to really kind of shorten that disparity or that gap Uh, and so we we do kind of multi-phase approach when we do our research projects yeah so do you find that there are particular groups of people who are you know they're, they're bigger sufferers from these disparities yeah, so typically right now from the research, what we know is that typically African-Americans or people of African descent have really had um, uh, kind of a wide disparity. Unfortunately, it's not even unique for this types of cancers that I mm-hmm. treat, these blood cancers. It's the same thing for breast cancer. Unfortunately, black women, unfortunately, have the worst outcomes. If you look at lung cancer, black men have some of the worst outcomes. If you look at colon cancer, we not only get it at an earlier age. So for the most part of America, we say, hey, you should actually get screened at 50 years old. That's kind of your 50 year old over the hill present. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in, in, in African-American men, 40 is really the recommendation in oh, some wow. in some groups and so uh, because if you wait till 50 now we already have an advanced disease and so um, and so it this is something that is spread out really among multiple different cancer types so we do know race is a big factor but as again like I mentioned um, location to the latest and greatest care or even doctors also creates a barrier there's a small town 
uh, in Florida where my family grew up is in Madison, Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's really kind of up near the Panhandle, about an hour away from Tallahassee, mm-hmm. uh, and really. Um, you know kind of access to high quality specialists and you know they just don't have that there yeah. uh, and so if you tell someone hey uh, you need to see an oncologist for me sure I go right down the road within five ten minutes there's an oncologist on every block but if you say well you got to take an hour and a half to get there then it's a whole story right because that's an hour and a half there hour and a half back that's three hours out of your day so then you say all right well when am I going to get a day off from work yeah. and then you know and it just becomes a whole other um, kind of issue that really isn't as easy as people think sometimes. Yeah, and I think, I mean, if nothing else, COVID has certainly done a, an incredible job of highlighting kind of health disparities for people, not just nationwide, but worldwide, because similarly in the UK, the people who have suffered the worst effects have been from black and brown communities. And it's, um, you know, it's a matter of how do we address those within the, the kind of medical community as a whole not just for a particular disease or yeah you know i think the the, a big problem too that covid uh exposed how kind of polar things are uh Mm -hmm. in america unfortunately um so i'll give you an example um i don't think people knew that their kids who don't have access to wi-fi so they so the the solution was oh just have everybody do it Mm -hmm. from the internet there are kids that I know personally who had to go to a McDonald's parking lot yeah. and get McDonald's Wi-Fi in order to use, to go to school. This yeah. is their school in a McDonald's parking lot. Yeah. And that's and that's not in like, you know, some third world or something. This is literally, you know, here in Florida, yeah. <laughs> you know. And so and so I think that um, there's just a lot of things that just weren't known to a very marginalized group. Right. And, uh, and so. You know, we talk about healthcare, but you know, it's financial care. It's uh, what we call the social determinants of health. You know, so that's education, that's health, that's transportation. You know, the list kind of goes on. Uh, that where you know you have some marginalized group of people who unfortunately uh, have these worse outcomes. But it's not just in one sphere. It's unfortunately because they all blend, right? Like you know, I always tell people that you know, healthcare is not very black and white, right? Because mm-hmm. you're a person, right? Not only are you uh, you know, a set of organs and heart beating and function. You also have like a life. You have a family member. You have, you know, some kind of social uh, interactions with people. You have a job or not have a job. You know, so it gets very complicated, especially, you know, in a country where a lot of your insurance is tied to your employment. Oh, yes. You know, and so that just creates a whole nother issue that, you know, happens all the time that I see. Yeah. And I think when we're talking about racial groups, one of the other things that people are now starting to realize is that race is not necessarily determining determining the likelihood that you're going to get a particular disease and even for me as a biomedical scientist i think it's probably only been in the last like five years or so it's occurred to me that it's it's not because indians have a particular set of genes that they're more likely to suffer from diabetes it's more likely to be either lack of education so i know my family is in the uk and both my parents were born in india and there you have language barriers and other issues like as you said who gets educated about these things right um and i'm sure that you've you've experienced the same things here have you had to kind of have this conversation with people that it's not just because they're black or brown people it's not their genes that are dictating this it's yeah you know honestly um that's the age-old question right is it nature versus nurture mm-hmm. right uh, honestly for a lot of times um 
We don't know, unfortunately. There's not enough work in this type of field for us to really answer that question effectively. So a lot of times we assume certain things and we say, well, it's because, um, you know, this person is uninsured or this person um, has a fifth grade education or this, you know, we, you know, but sometimes actually the smarter we get in our detection of like, for example, the human genome and actually look at certain differences, there are certain things that we're able to kind of detect that maybe a group of people may have a propensity for a certain mutation or mm -hmm. allelic change or something that can really kind of predispose them to having unfortunately a worse outcome at an earlier age so yeah. uh we're still learning about that and so mm -hmm. uh there's always going to be a balance it's never going to be all nurture all nature you know but but i think you know lear we're learning how to identify people and kind of really uh, kind of put them in what we call an at-risk group at an earlier age and hopefully that leads to a better outcome. Yeah. So kind of related to this, I, I know that you've um, spoken uh, on the subject of kind of social justice within medicine. So this is obviously a much broader point of view, not just related to a specific disease. Can you tell us more about that? You know, it's um, everything's intertwined, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and so... Um, just because someone is a doctor doesn't mean that they don't, you know, watch and see what happens to, you know, unarmed black men in America, right? Um, you know, just because uh, someone is in healthcare doesn't mean they don't see certain injustices. For example, um, I don't know if you saw that Serena Williams, you know, one of the world's greatest tennis players, you know, she almost died during mm -hmm. childbirth, right? Yeah. African-American women, unfortunately, even can't have babies. Yeah. at the same rate <laughs> as other folks and so it, it just um, a lot of times becomes frustrating you know that uh, um, it doesn't really necessarily matter the stature right um, and so a lot of times people like to um, you know kind of hinge upon the past and say hey these things are things that happened a long time ago mm -hmm. and you know I'm not my father but you know I mean this happened to Serena like two years ago right yeah um, I mean there's things that happen almost daily that I see that really um, kind of spark a big question of really what's happening in healthcare um, for certain groups of people. You know, they they created what they call a, a vital sign. So a vital sign is something that a nurse or someone in the healthcare profession has to assess because it's a vital part of their function. Mm -hmm. They assess that pain was one of those vital signs yeah. that say, hey, I need to know how this person's pain is doing. Unfortunately, there's a perception out there and there's research to support that people believe that because of the color of your skin, your level of pain is different. There's, there's, there's data on that, right? And so imagine if you have some kind of chronic pain condition such as things like sickle cell, mm -hmm. which unfortunately affect people of color, Yeah. right? So now sickle cell presents, as you asked about how things present, it doesn't present as you know a lump in your breast or something else, it, it presents as pain. And this is your one, one way your body is telling you because the way we were made, the body typically gives us signs that something's off, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's up to us to listen to those signs and say, all right, let me get it checked out. So if your body's saying, hey, there's pain, go, go see help and then you go to an emergency room like hey my body's saying hey this is really a painful thing for me and someone's like nah go home uh take some Tylenol you'll be okay or you know you're writhing in pain and they unfortunately take the person ahead of you who really doesn't have an acute of an issue you know and so mm -hmm. there's a lot of these kind of uh, subtle things that are happening in medicine that uh, I really hope we can turn around and so that's why you know that's part of my job is to really kind of make sure that um 
you know, I can kind of be an example and kind of make sure, at least at Moffitt, that we do a great job of being mindful about some of these um, what we call implicit biases that people yeah. have. Yeah. So is are there kind of standards for these things within medicine or? Well, they're hard to measure, right? And unfortunately, just being a complete honest, they've been in the underbelly of medicine since the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. So it's hard to kind of measure something that is always been there yeah. right uh and they're very subjective things and unfortunately even like mask wearing right mm -hmm. like you see we do something different in florida than what they do in new york right like yeah. like so even something very simple it gets very difficult to number one enforce number one to like police to tell people to get people to believe in this is the honest to god truth i have patients right now who told me that they thought that the coronavirus was a political scare oh. and they didn't believe in it and yeah. so when you see things like that and you hear things like that you know it's hard to kind of flip the coin and kind of tell people say hey there's people who are hurting out there and we really need to have kind of a a minful ear and really kind of have our heart and eyes open um it's it's, it's unfortunate yeah so um I know one of the things that we were told about you, this, this sounds really terrible, like people talking about you behind your back, um, but all good things, all good things, um, is how much it matters to you that your local community get good yeah. information. Yeah. So how is it that you, you contact and serve your community? So this is where I'm from. These are my people, the people who I treat with cancer are people I went to class with, people I grew up with, elementary school. Mm -hmm. These are their parents. Uh, these is my actual family members, right? Yeah. Uh, and so this is important to me. Uh, and so I think that at the very least, what I can do is say, hey, what I know, you guys need to know. This mm -hmm. is something that, um, even as simple as someone getting a second opinion. Yeah. In certain communities, a second opinion is looked at as a duh like why wouldn't I get a second opinion like this is important and my life is important and my health is important like it's kind of intuitive yeah but there's some people who look at it as what they call disloyal right they say oh I love my doctor there's no reason I would cheat on him or oh. or her you know and they, 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 they believe it so there's a there's a cultural stigma sometimes even with something as simple as getting a second opinion which from someone who sees a lot of second opinions I change a lot of therapies because I'm like hey I think you know there's new data that shows, you know, drug A plus drug B is better than drug A alone. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah. And so, so I don't think the doctors are intentionally sometimes trying to do things. But, you know, as we know, it's like what we call drinking through a, a fire hydrant. Yeah. There's a lot of data out there. The Internet gives you so much different things. you got to have a way to filter it. And so having a second opinion is a way to have a second eye and somebody to look at. And so what I do is I try to educate people to make sure that, um, they know as much as I do, whether that's going out into the community to do things uh, such as um, uh, so local uh, kind of churches or community events. Uh, we have uh, at Moffitt what they call the Ask, Ask the Expert. Yeah. And so uh, what we did with Ask the Expert is uh, I was, I guess, the expert. I don't know why they call <laughs> me that. But uh, but but really, uh, I got to go back to St. Pete and really give some great talks to people who had some of these kind of rare cancers, these blood cancers. Mm -hmm. And uh, because sometimes... Um, of course, this was before COVID, but uh, people just needed to kind of like make sure that they were okay. They had never heard of these cancers before, and so people didn't know. There was a, a little uneasiness or, or unsteadiness there, and so asking the expert really anything that they wanted to, yeah. um, I think really gave people a big deal of relief and, and help. So I would imagine we would continue to keep doing those. 
Yeah. That's so interesting. Like the, the idea of loyalty to your doctor never even occurred to me. Yeah. So I think it just goes to show, and this is something we talk about in science communication, is knowing your audience. Mm-hmm. Like the way you best serve them is to understand what their needs are and what their kind of like cultural behaviors are and um, how best you can approach them. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem also is that, you know, the amount of, of African-American men who are physicians hasn't changed in 50 years. Oh, wow, right? really? So, so, you know, there's been a big push to, you know, get uh, women, right? So now if you look at most medical schools across the country, they're really almost half and half, which yeah. is remarkable. Yeah. And, and, and we've made great strides in really providing a lot of female physicians. Um, but unfortunately, if you look at those same medical schools from, you know, 2005 and 1965, you know, they really look almost the same. That's uh, wild. It is wild. And so it's hard if you have a workforce of people who don't understand the culture. They And, and again, I don't think it's intuitive or uh, intentional. I just think that they're just unaware. Right. And so and so you have a patient who might be from an outside community who might come in and have more reservation. So then you say, all right, there's some new treatment. As I mentioned, this CAR T is the latest and greatest groundbreaking, changing lives. And now you have somebody who you don't really connect with telling you, hey, there's this new thing. We want you to be the one to get it. Yeah. They're not going to. What? What do you mean? I'm not a guinea pig. Right. We hear that all the time. Right. Look at the differences in COVID vaccine Mm. utilization among races. It is remarkable. Yeah. And so this is not something unique to oncology. This is not something unique to even healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. This is really a social and and racial issue that that we need to kind of improve. And and that's why I'm here. Yeah. I have to say, like, for most things, you you feel like, you know, there's got to be some incremental change within kind of demographics doing certain areas of work. And I... I didn't realize that it's so bad that it hasn't yeah. changed in 10 years. Yeah. That's awful. Yeah, 50 years. I was, yeah, I was going to launch into expletives there. We'll, we'll resist that. Um, yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate. Unfortunately, you know, there is uh, what we call um, uh, a primary school to prison pipeline, and there, yeah. those things have been growing. Um, you know, th- we had um, the crack acad- epidemic that oh, happened in the yeah. 80s that really kind of took a lot of the uh, you know kind of structure of black families that they had during the 60s and now these kids are getting locked up so now if they had children those children are growing out without fathers the single parent households and really those are things that generations of people are now starting to you know kind of see those effects so hopefully we can change some of these things around because they've really kind of broken up the structure for a lot of people yeah do you know of any initiatives that are working on um getting more particularly black men into things like medicine and science and so on? Yeah, so we have what they call the BEST program um, uh, that we work with uh, young minorities. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know, the, the, the question that always comes up is when do you try to engage them? Yeah. Do you engage people uh, in high school? Do you, you know, is that too early? You know, uh, do you try to uh, catch them in college while they're already, uh, you know, kind of learning about medicine? Do you catch them actually in medical school and say, hey, you know, you know, and, and I think that's where more research, unfortunately, is needed. You know, it's just it's, we don't know. So there's a lot of different um, uh, programs out there and each one does it a little differently because no one knows kind of how to do it. And honestly, in my mind, I think as long as we're trying, you know, mm-hmm. I think 
the effort is there, right? Yeah. That we really um, try them all. Try in high school, try in college, try, you know, I think having a repeated sense of, hey, you are important. Hey, you matter. Mm -hmm. Hey, you need to continue to finish your schooling. I think sometimes really helps propel people. I didn't get to where I was by myself, right? Yeah. Like, and, and there were programs that I were in that my mom signed me up for that I went to on Saturday mornings. And I was like, mom, this is the worst thing. Why <laughs> we learned about science on a Saturday oh, morning science. instead of watching cartoons. You know what I mean? Like, like I didn't yeah. get it, right? And, yeah. and we don't expect kids to get it, but I think that if the programs are there, the parents will put the kids in them because yeah. we know that there's such a need for it. And so, um, and so there's tons of programs out there. It's just that, um, you know, kind of making sure that we see that it works, right? And kind of hanging with the kids long enough that really say, hey, like, like for example, some of the programs that I were in, nobody's reached out to me 20 years later and say, hey, you used to come here on Saturdays. Like, how are you doing now? You yeah. know what I mean? Um, you know, and so I think the long longitudinal studies are mm. really what we knew because unfortunately those, a lot of programs don't maintain their funding. Yeah. And so yeah, yeah. unfortunately they lose that. And so that's a big problem that we have. So it's, there's, there's layers to this, you know, this is like one of those lasagnas that you see where you have to like <laughs> kind of keep cutting through because there's so many layers to unpack. But, uh, but for sure, I think each little bit helps. Yeah. It's, and it's so depressing that those kinds of really important programs always rely on philanthropy and grants and so on. And um, yeah, it's and I completely agree with you. Like for most of these efforts, we need long-term studies of what happens to people when they get out. Yeah, you know, and it shouldn't be, you know, based off of who's in office or we shouldn't politicize some of these things, you know, but a lot of these programs sometimes, you know, depending on what happens in the political climate, they lose their funding, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and really, uh, you know, kind of, if you, as COSA has shown us, you know, once things shut down, it's hard to get them oh, back yeah. up and running, you know? And so that that's really what happens. And, and unfortunately, especially if you take people who are in a very vulnerable community, then it's like, all right, well, if they're not seeing us on Saturdays, where are they spending their Saturdays now? Yeah. You know, what's, yeah. what's caught their attention now, right? Yeah. Uh, and so unfortunately, uh, those things just happen, you know, and, and it just creates a perpetual problem. And so I really hope we can see some change. And that's my goal in my life to kind of see that, you know, even if we don't, you know, close the gap, at least that we move the needle. Yeah, for sure. And so we've mentioned COVID a few times already. And um, certainly within our family, David and I, as the scientists, we've been called on to answer people's questions. I'm sure you've had the same experience, right? Yeah. So I have family members who text me pictures of their skin, even though I'm not a dermatologist, <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, what is this? You know, uh, or, you know, uh, ask me a lot. of, You know, honestly, I think it's good that people seek information. You know, yeah. there, there's some people who say, oh, I don't even want to look at the Internet. And I say, no, look at the Internet. You know, I'm here to help you decipher what is important and what's not. But, you know, I think to have a thirst for knowledge and know what's going on, I think that's very important. And so what I did was I used my own personal like Facebook page and just kind of went live and started like answering people's questions and start talking to people. And I set up like a I don't even know if you call it like a, a covid questionnaire or town hall <laughs> yeah. um, but I really wanted to make sure that at least people in my circle you know people who are my Facebook friends which you know are they really your friends but at <laughs> least people who um, I would you know communicate with to say hey you know if you guys have questions I want to be a sounding board to say hey um, what is the New England Journal of Medicine and and what is this statistic yeah. saying like you know those are very 
um, abstract things for someone who may not have been in school in 20, 10 years. You know, you're asking them to read some piece of paper and talk through statistics. That's just not a level of reasonable understanding for the average person. So I said, you know what? Let me be the person to read it. And then I'll say, you know what? I got the data. I got the literature. Let's talk. And so uh, we were able to do that a couple different times, either through Zoom uh, or through Facebook or some platform uh, to kind of make sure that we were able to kind of talk to the masses. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> well, yeah, thanks. I guess I don't know. I just I, I don't know. I just when you see a need, it's hard to kind of just sit by idly. Yeah. So did you find that you had particular questions that would crop up regularly? Yeah, I mean, I think the main question is fear. Right. Yeah. And so people say, is this something I need to worry about? You know, no one wants to die. Right. Um, you know, it's kind of a, a inherent human right is to live. Mm -hmm. And so when you see, unfortunately, COVID affecting and killing certain groups of people and you're like, hey, that looks like me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the people who are dying, you know. Yeah. And so uh, I think people really um, were scared, you know. And so they say, hey, you know, is there anything I can do to stay alive and be around, you know, three months, six months now, even 14 months since this thing has started. And so uh, those are the main questions that people want to know, like, how do I live? You know, and when the vaccine came out, uh, you know, the main question that people had was, hey, can I trust this? Right. Yeah. Because unfortunately, trust is one of those things that uh, we have to develop. Right. And people it's not inherent. You know, that's not something that is just a given that, hey, you tell me something is good. And I just say, OK, yeah. you know, like, you know, uh, and so and so people really have to kind of develop that sense of trust for themselves and we have to be there to be receptive of that yeah i i saw some tremendous stories on um churches within the u.s and i saw some brilliant like networks of um mosques in the uk as well like one imam took it upon himself to make sure that he's he got himself filmed taking the vaccine and so on and made sure that they answered the questions of their local communities yeah let me give you an example so um uh, I coached my son's uh, baseball team. Mm -hmm. I did not set out to be the coach. Actually, I told him <laughs> this year, I said, hey, son, I'm not going to coach because I typically coach. I said, yeah. you know, there's a new coach. First day of practice. Practice supposed to start at 7. 7.05, 7.10, 7.15, no coach. So you have all these little kids, all these parents looking around. You know, kids start to get kind of scratchy you know yeah, yeah. and so it's like so i said you know what let's go out on the field so i took all these kids i said hey are you if you're here for baseball practice come on took all the kids started doing drills started um you know and so it just took one person to say you know what we're tired of sitting around like we got to get up off our butt and do something and put it into action yeah. and so uh i I've just taken that upon myself to say, hey, I'll be that person to do it. And so now I'm like the coach of his team, you know, and uh, <laughs> that was not my intention. But, you know, now I'm this person who uh, is a cancer doctor and talking about an infection or, you know, a disease when really that's not my area. But but really my, my goal is if I can help one, then uh, that's enough for me and it's worth the time. And so uh, the kids, you know, they really enjoy the baseball and people really enjoy learning about COVID and really being able to uh, kind of see someone who, uh, takes a vested interest in them, you know, because yeah. I think that's the, the issue is that people want to know that, you know, they're not just a number. Uh, they want to know that this is someone who really kind of wants them to succeed. Yeah, and uh, and sure. while all the kids, of course, may not go to the pros, I'm just like, hey, I just want to teach you how to throw, yeah. how to catch, how to do the basics, you know. Um, and so I try to translate that into really everything. Yeah. That's so neat. Yeah. Um, 
but I, I did not want to be the coach. I'll just say that. Uh, you know, I, I, told, I had a long talk on the drive there. I said, I'm not going to be the coach this year. And, uh, and yet. And yet, exactly. <laughs> there was a different plan in place that I did not know about. Yeah. So I have this question, which is that obviously you wear a number of hats. And three of them is like you do, you're an oncologist, so you, you take treatments for patients. You are a scientist, you do research in a lab, and you do outreach. How does the outreach part impact you as a doctor and you as a scientist? Oh. Yeah, you know, I, I think, um, honestly, outreach is one of the hardest things. Um, because as a doctor, you have really all this medical knowledge, right? And you bestow that to someone and say, hey, um, this is the treatment plan. This is your type of cancer. And this is how this is going to work, right? In research, you say, hey, I have this idea. This is how this idea is going to go. You think of the methods, the research strategy, you know, and you perform it. But with outreach, you need to actually listen, <laughs> you know, and say, hey, tell me what is going on. You tell me how I can help, right? Because I think that's where a lot of outreach goes wrong is that people still try to convey the same, you know, kind of in the a hospital attitude for people who are in the community where it's not supposed to be like that the community really needs to tell you and say hey this is what we need and you need to kind of figure out a way to help them with that need and so uh, and so it's taught me to be actually a better listener uh, to be a better doctor I think because um, like I said it's just not taught to us that way it's like hey you know you've been to school you know you've done all this training you know tell this person how you can help them as opposed to being like asking the person how can I help you and really addressing the person with their specific need yeah I completely agree I mean it's the, the same within um, within science people who are starting to do more outreach work with it doesn't matter what realm it's in I guess none of us get any practical training in these things and so a lot of us are trying to learn to do these on the these things on the fly um, and for me, the, the way I picture outreach is like it, it always sounds like it's coming from the expert in inverted commas out to members of the community, whereas outreach comes from both sides, right? If you're shaking someone's hand, you're both reaching out to each other. And as you say, like the listening component is so important. And I don't know how many people um, enjoy just sitting there and listening to other people like they're, they're very keen to share their own ideas yeah you know and and honestly if you listen enough the community will tell you what's going on right um, but again that takes time that takes patience um, and and it takes getting it wrong sometimes right because like I said you might just not know and you you know I think sometimes what I see is that people pat themselves on the back and say oh you know we gave this great talk and we did such a good job but where is that going to lead, right? Are people really there to absorb that and use the information as opposed to them saying, hey, this is the information that we need. Mm -hmm. Can you convey it in a way that we can understand? Yeah. And I, and, I, and I think that's the missing part is kind of doing it from the opposite end and have the community really tell you what's happening. Yeah. So, so did you have any more questions? Yes, I do. David has yes. more questions. Sorry, I don't, we don't... We don't often interview people who are physicians and scientists. Yeah. So um, we have a few, but not many. And, and the first podcast we ever recorded is with my friend Jacob Scott. Okay. He used to be based here at Moffitt, but now it's at Cleveland Clinic. Oh, nice. And, and one of the things I, I, I remember from working with Jacob is that as a physician scientist, you have two very different personalities. 
as a scientist, you're supposed to question everything. Mm -hmm. But as a, science, as a physician, you're supposed to project confidence. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember my friend just switching from one to the other, a bit like code switch, basically. <laughs> and going from, from doubting everything is like, okay, well, what's the mechanism for this? How do we actually model that? And then getting a call from a patient and switching to, I'm a doctor, trust me, you're in good hands. I, I know what I'm doing, this is great. How do you compaginate both things? How do you actually do that? It seems impossible to me. Both Pamela and I just PhD, so for us, this is an amazing skill. <laughs> well, you know, honestly, I think it's the type of person that you are. Like for me, it's not like I get paid extra to do. These are things that I want to do. These are things that it has to be kind of in the person to be able to know to say, hey, I'm reading this person's body language and they might be looking at me, but I don't think they're understanding a word <laughs> I'm saying, you know, like yeah. those are things that's hard to teach. And so as a person, you really that's why having, you know, kind of a, a, a big diaspora of the type of physicians that we have, you know, there's some people who need to kind of like be in a lab they're happy in a lab and they do great science and great work there's some doctors who you know kind of can just touch your skin and say oh i know that this is the diagnosis and this is how to best treat it you know like like that's their ex but then you need people who also are great communicators right you need people who are very empathetic right i mean there's the, the i mean people are not monolithic right and so the different needs that patients need is uh, an array just like a rainbow and so we need doctors that are just as colorful and diverse and different as the colors of a rainbow and so the problem that we comes in is when we try to force the red approach on yellow it doesn't work you know and so um so hopefully that answers the question but really the main thing is i think you know having that being the person's personality and and that being a part of who they are i think is 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 really the, the best way to do it and the only way we do that is if we diversify the medical schools which will diversify the workforce yeah for sure um so i'm thinking about you you talking about all of the work that you do and this is all work you know you might enjoy doing it but it's you know it's it takes a lot of time and energy and thought to do these things so what do you do for fun uh, so honestly for fun for me uh, is hanging out with the kids uh, I mean that's 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 my biggest thing uh, is that my kids uh, wake me up in the morning by daddy 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 <laughs> uh, and and I and I enjoy that you know uh, really being able to like actually coach my son's team even though I said I wasn't gonna do it but uh -huh. but I but I enjoy it you know um, uh, my wife probably won't like me telling the story but our, our 10 year wedding anniversary landed on a Friday uh -huh. Fridays are when we have baseball practice and I, and I said <laughs> I said oh man we need to really celebrate this can we do it on Saturday and she was like okay okay and so uh, you know just because I really enjoy it and uh, and so um, when when having fun um, it's what you do for work, then it never seems like work. And so for me, um, even being here talking to you guys, I mean, this is fun for me. This is a great thing that I enjoy, um, being able to uh, share my thoughts and let people know experiences that they maybe have never had and things that people say, oh, a doctor is either talking like that or a doctor had those types of experiences. We didn't know, right? Yeah. Uh, and so a doctor came from what kind of community? Uh, and so people, those are things that people just are unaware. These are not the sexy things that make the five o'clock news, right? Yeah. And so, and so, unfortunately, social media and um, you know mainstream media really kind of dictate someone's perception. Like even for myself, 
I hadn't necessarily seen a black doctor till I was in medical school. Yeah. And so sometimes, you know, being able to see things help people be able to achieve it and attain it. And so um, that's my role. And that's my my mission in life. I love it. Love it. <laughs> like I said, I mean, essentially, it feels like you've just got to do the things that bring you joy. And if hanging out with your kids and doing your work is what brings you joy, that's yeah yeah I, I i i won't tell them that because sometimes they you know daddy 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 i'm like oh gosh here we go but uh but it's it's all fun how and, old and, are they uh my son is seven and my daughter's four so so they're very lively and uh, and energetic so um they keep me busy i think that's exactly the ages of um my sister's kids seven and four yeah so. Yeah, they're, they're fun ages. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's fun. That's what it's fun. And that's, I mean, that's, I mean, so people say, well, what do you like to do? I was like, whatever. We do, we do, you know, so <laughs> I hate to say it like this. So in our <laughs> neighborhood, I'm now the, um, like, baseball guru <laughs> so now all the neighborhood kids like you know we every night almost uh they go out and say hey let's play baseball and so they have me being the pitcher and all this kind of things but i just you know i enjoy that because i know that at one point uh at seven turns to 17 they won't want to hang out with dad anymore right yeah, yeah. Uh, and so i really try to soak up uh this element while i can so did you ever used to play yourself i did but not well okay. <laughs> <laughs> i uh you know I, I football and basketball were my two main sports i actually uh tore my acl uh, in high school um uh playing football and so um i told myself i said i'm having surgery to have fun in a sport and i'm oh, 15 yeah. years old and i said um i think i'll just stick with the books <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and so and so I, I still enjoy sports and they're a great way to kind of pass time and kind of keep in shape. Uh, but uh, but I knew that uh, my kind of career trajectory was something else. And so um, I'm here now. I'm sure the medical profession in the community is much happier for it. <laughs> yeah, they, they weren't happy for my uh, sports <laughs> skills. I'll just say it that way. <laughs> well, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. It's It's been um, very educational for us. And um, it's it's amazing to hear about the work that you do, and I think it's just so very important. No, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk. Um, like I said, health disparities research, again, isn't one of the sexy items that kind of makes the cover of really any research magazine. So to let people know that, hey, there's people who are out there who are trying to understand why, you know, one person who doesn't make as much money doesn't do as well as someone who's rich. That shouldn't happen. Yeah. Why does someone who looks different um, on the outside have a different biology of their disease on the inside? We don't know. Yeah. And so there's someone who's trying to answer those questions. And um, and it's not just me. Uh, we have a whole team of people at Moffitt, um, but also across the country. But unfortunately, that circle is small. And so hopefully by sharing this with people, they will know that uh, this is something that you can make a career in. And it's something that really is very needed. Yeah. When I was in medical school, I, um, like the first day of medical school, everyone's kind of like meeting each other, meeting all the teachers, like, you know, that kind of thing. And still, I hadn't, like I said, really seen a black doctor. So I kind of knew that I was in medical school to be a doctor, but like, it hadn't like hit me that like, mm -hmm. hey, you can actually do this, right? So uh, there was like an intermission. I went to the bathroom and one of my teachers was there. You know, as guys know, you know, you never stand next to the guy in the stall. There's always <laughs> this kind of awkward space. Uh, and he ripped literally the loudest fart that I have ever heard. 
And for some reason, that fart made me think, oh, this guy's just like me. He <laughs> farts. Like, you know? And so I said, I can do this. You know? And so that that was the light bulb moment for me where, like, all right, I guess I'm going to be a doctor now. <laughs> you know? And so... Um, I won't say his name, but uh, I appreciate you uh, and uh, your fart uh, really shaped my career. So, <laughs> that is my great story. This is your host, Pambe Bahia, with my co-pilot, David Basanta, signing off for now. This episode's feature track is called Gaspar's Revenge, which will sound super relevant to anyone who knows anything about Tampa and its obsession with pirates. Massive thanks to local band Black Valley Moon for the right to use it. As always, the links to all the ways to find them and their twangy glory can be found in our show notes. If you've only just discovered Two Scientists, there's plenty more to go back and listen to on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever you like to get them. Share your favorites with your friends and follow us on social media. You can find all the links on our website. And while we get back to finding new guests, we hope that you all do your best to stay safe and well. He yeah, farts. So your, your career is predicated on flatulence. <laughs> exactly. Love it. Love it. <laughs>